Hi, this is Karan from San Francisco. And this is Alice from Los Angeles, and welcome to Movies That Shaped Us, a journey of self-discovery through a shared love of film. Now, we are two longtime friends who grew up on opposite sides of the globe with very different backgrounds that were both shaped and are still being shaped by the movies we see and love. So in each episode, we'll cover a topic around important people, places, events, and moments in our lives, and then explore it through three of our favorite movies, and really hope that these movies and topics are as fun and revelatory to you as they are to us. Um, So, Karan, why don't you uh, give listeners a sense of what we're talking about today? Sure. So today's topic is movies that shaped our love of going to the movies, as in to the big screen, to the theater. Um, So, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around this over the last, I would I want to say like five to six years, but the pandemic has obviously accelerated this conversation where people haven't been going to the movie theaters. Um, and so we just felt this was an interesting topic to get into, especially where the divide seems to be growing further and further. Where on one hand, you have Spider-Man No Way Home, which is like beating all box office records. Meanwhile, the rest of the crop is sort of is what it is, which is interesting because it's not too long ago where the year that Get Out, Lady Bird all came out, they all made like hundreds of millions of dollars. So it wasn't that long ago, but it's been sort of a steady shift to a streaming and seems like the pandemic has sort of really pushed us further. So that's sort of what we wanted to get into, but also really in a way reminisce um, what watching movies on the big screen mean to us and how they've shaped our journey and and such so so when i was thinking about my framework on this topic it was really about what does watching movies on the big screen mean and what does that invoke for me and i use that as sort of my framework to think about movies that really fell in that uh curious alex how are you thinking about this yeah, no, it, it's a lot of the same, a lot of the same things. I mean, I think, like you said, this is definitely a uh, topic that is growing in uh, discussion popularity uh, over the years, just as streaming has become so much more powerful and the dynamics of what are in theaters have been changing. I'm, I definitely was thinking about, yeah, the, the emotions of what is special to me about the, the theatrical experience. And then what really kind of helped me frame um, my top three came to this question of like, well, imagine this future where there are, like if we lost theaters, which we did actually for a couple of years with this pandemic, like what are the things that I really would miss the most that I feel like no uh, setup at home could really replicate in in any way. And that's what really helps me form my list. So maybe more of a pessimistic kind of viewpoint. But again, we did live through this time period where, I mean, I didn't see a movie for about over, uh, I think it was like uh, over a year um, because of the the theaters being closed. So, yeah, that's interesting. I, I had a similar thing in my in my mind too. While putting together my list, not so much like oh, if movie theaters never came back, what would happen? But more like if I had not watched these movies that I am going to mention in the theater, how would my experience be different? Because you know we love movies, so obviously if you're watching a good movie in a theater, if it's a good movie, it's going to be great. But mm-hmm. there had to be something extra going on with the experience of watching it on the big screen. And that was important. And that's why this was mm. a bit of a hard list because there are so many great movies that I watched in, in, on, on the big screen that were amazing. But, but I had to think hard about what if I stripped off the movie theater experience? Would I feel the same or differently about the movie? 
Oh, like if you had seen the movie on DVD on instead or something, would that have affected your the movie's impact on you? Yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. Why don't you start with what uh, your number three is? So my number three is this little movie called Knives Out from 2019. So in my framework of, you know, what does watching movies on the big screen mean? The first thing that I really thought of was this communal sense of watching something with a whole bunch of strangers. Um, and there's nothing better than laughter and suspense that really does that. So I really wanted a movie that signified that. And, and it, it's sort of poignant, like we were saying, that this is only two years ago, 2019. I am terrible at mental math, but not too long ago. Uh, where this happened, where I watched this movie in a packed theater in the first few weeks of when it came out, and it was delightful. And I think to me, it comes back down to great actors, people whom you are very familiar with, want to see, playing people who are also deeply rooted in reality. Like you have an influencer lady in Tony Collette, you have, you know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis playing this self-made woman within quotes. Um, so they're, they're, these are relatable people, but they're also heightened all within the context of this murder mystery whodunit. So to give you a little bit of a log line for people who haven't seen it, a detective investigates the death of a patriarch of an eccentric combative family. So, you know, this is obviously in the long tradition of whole bunch of whodunits. I have a special fondness for this genre because I grew up with a lot of Poirot in my in my home. I still watch Poirot sort of comfort TV to me, but it was interesting to watch this put on the big screen in this kind of lush way. And when I say lush, is everything from the house to Chris Evan and his sweater. It's all part of it. Um, but it's not all just fluff only. And I think that's what's unique about this movie is that yes it's funny yes it's well done well acted but it's playing with real themes that we care about themes of immigration class divide people of privilege who think they are doing the right thing but really they're just selfish and obsessed with money and themselves and you see variations of that and all of that pulls you in and then the center of the movie is Ana de Armas, who I'd never even heard of before. And it's sort of a genius bit of casting because since you've never seen this person, you have no opinions about them. Right. Right. So it's hard to know, do you trust them or, or, or no? You're sympathetic to them, you're empathetic to them, but you're also kind of suspicious. And so it's interesting how Ryan Johnson is sort of playing with your own baggage and your own perspectives and point of views on all these very prescient cultural themes that are happening, but it's all done in a very light handed way, which is fun, entertaining, keeps you at the edge of your seat. And then of course you have a little bit of Benoit Blanc played by Daniel Craig, who is just ridiculous, but you know, it just all somehow comes together. So I love this movie. I don't know how much repeat value this movie has. I tried watching it this week. And after a little bit, I was like, mm, okay, I know what's happening. And it's not even about the whodunit aspect. I think there's something about the first time punch of this movie that just cannot be replicated. And, and going back to that point of, if I had watched this movie on TV for the first time, 
I don't think it would have delivered the way it did watching it on the big screen. And I think a big part of that is the communal experience. I don't remember the last time where I actually made eye contact with a stranger sitting next to me huh. while we were huh. laughing, you know, yeah. on something. And, and I think that's pretty magical that that can happen and movies can bring you together in that fashion. So that's Knives Out, uh, my number nice. three. I actually did not see this film in the theaters. It's it, uh -huh. the, the whodunit genre is not something that is that appealing to me. Um, so I just kind of fell through the cracks even though I heard a lot of good things about it. And I, I streamed this um, during COVID in the first couple of months because again, I heard a lot of great stuff and then watched it, really liked the movie a lot. Um, I thought uh, it was interesting how the, the quote unquote twist, like they gave away kind of half of the twist really early on in the film and explaining that, you know, she was involved in, in the death of the, of the, the she being honored Armas was involved in the death of the main character and, or the, the father figure in the, in the film. And that maybe that was the only twist, but then there's that extra twist at the end around, uh, around Chris Evans, which was cool. And I guess um, was the, how was the audience response to that? Was it like the whole theater gasping? Was it seemed to be like, or was it mainly that the responses was more on the, the comedic elements uh, that, that you were seeing? All of it, right? The gasps um, as well as the comedic elements and how true to form these people feel, but they're also a little bit heightened. Yeah. And, but then there is a mystery at the end of it. And, um, and even with Anna de Armas, like, like I was saying, because you don't know who this person is, like literally, even as an actor, I kept questioning, is her narrative even real? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not, you know? So, so yeah, there's just a lot of excitement, enthusiasm. And, you know, we talk a lot about event movies and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that in our end sort of recap. I think whether intentioned or not, this is kind of an event movie, if you will, you know? That's true. And it is actually interesting, just going back to what we were talking about in the uh, in the intro with just the shifting landscape, that this was a movie that was released in theaters, Lionsgate uh, distributed the film, um, and it was very successful financially. And then Netflix actually bought the rights to all the sequels to they're going to make a whole big franchise out of this. So it's a small movie that did very well. That's now being turned into a franchise for streaming platforming. Who knows? whether Netflix will do a theatrical release for Knives Out 2. So, so it is kind of interesting, actually, that this was on your list. I think you could make some connections just to the overall business about what's, what's going on in, in Hollywood and distribution with this totally. franchise. Totally. I was going to get to that for sure. Like, this is case in point of the shifting landscape. Yeah. All right. What's your number three? Yeah. So uh, my number three um, is, is uh, so this is some of my other picks do get into actually the other two that I get to um, do get into the community aspect of a theater experience. Um, but this was one where it's much more of a personal reaction that I had. And this was um, 1996's uh, Mission Impossible. This is the first film in the Mission Impossible franchise. So at the time it wasn't uh, even a franchise, um, the logline uh, from IMDb, an American agent under false suspicion of disloyalty must discover and expose the real spy without the help of his organization. Um, so this is Brian De Palma's uh, director. Tom Cruise obviously starred in the film. Um, I saw this in theaters uh, when I was 14. So it's very young, um, but it really did leave a lasting impression on me in terms of the visceral reaction you can get from thrills and effects and suspense and action of seeing this on the big screen. It really kind of culminated uh, for me um, in several sequences. There's a famous sequence in Langley where it's, it's totally silent, 
where Tom Cruise is there um, <clears throat> just suspended from the ceiling and it's a whole packed audience, but like nobody is saying anything. Uh, and there's the, when, you know, the uh, sweat drop is about to fall on the floor, which would set off the alarms and Tom mm-hmm. Cruise is trying not to do that. You just hear everyone just like this collective gasp. So it's, it's definitely that was, was, uh, is really amazing. Uh, but for me, it really sums up uh, uh, this whole experience of this movie being in, in theaters for me is summed up in the final sequence, um, which is the Tom Cruise uh, on the, in the channel train sequence. So it's very end of the film. Um, very actually similar. The sequence starts where De Palma doesn't have any sound in it at all. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, musical score, I should say. Right. Um, so you're really just uh, feeling all the sounds of Tom Cruise being on top of this train. And then it culminates in this incredible sequence where he jumps onto this helicopter that's chasing him inside of the channel. All of a sudden, the Mission Impossible theme song kicks into gear and he you know, blows up the helicopter, kills the bad guy in this incredible visual effect shot. And it, it really just for me, like I think we touched on this in the previous episode, like the mise-en-scene, sort of all the parts of, mm-hmm. of film kind of coming together from uh, Tom Cruise's acting in that scene, ILM, incredible special effects that just on the big screen were something uh, that really impacted me. And then just the music, like Danny Elfman did the score and really pulled a lot um, from Bernard Herrmann because um, obviously De Palma, so it's got to be a Hitchcock-influenced film, which it definitely was. And yeah, that spectacle, I was actually on the edge of my seat. Like I remember specifically being 14 and after that whole thing was over and like, you know, Tom Cruise didn't die and he, he won and then you know, the train stops and everything, just realizing, oh my God, like my hands are like gripping the, the seat. I'm literally on the edge of my seat. Like I thought that was just an expression. Like I didn't know this was a real thing. Uh-huh. So it really just encapsulates to me something where on the big screen with the audience, with the big sound um, that it has this impact on you that, you know, as big as your TV could be at home, nothing could really ever capture that. And then, you know, subsequently after that, I've experienced that same sort of thrill of, and sensation, but that first time left such a lasting impression. I mean, like, wow, like, this stuff, uh, these big budget, you know, big action, uh, suspense thriller movies uh, really can have a, a big impact on you when you're in the in the theater. I'll never forget that moment. Uh, I'm almost jealous of you that you got to watch this when you were of that age, because I've watched this like much later in my life, uh-huh. not in the theater. And it still obviously is iconic and completely mesmerized me and such. But watching it on the big screen, like you said, but at that age... Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that would do to a mind of a 14 year old. Cause it's sort of, yeah, you, it's, you haven't experienced or seen anything like it, you know? I mean, most people probably haven't, but especially at that age. So yeah. What a great pick. Uh, I feel like this is, I mean, we'll get to this on my list, hopefully, mm-hmm. as well, but to me, this is kind of like the best of blockbuster coming together with, something that has something to say but is also entertaining it's not just all fluff it's not just you know a piece for the heck of it but but there's sort of meaning and reason behind it and it's done deftly in all departments right it's not just the director's showpiece it's everything coming together like you said so yeah yeah, i I love this movie and what a great career you know for tom cruise i mean i there's a part of me and you and i we've talked about this that i miss him doing more adult dramas, but, you know, hey, as we have this conversation, maybe he had a pulse on the business way ahead that if I want to survive and continue to kind of be relevant, not just in this country, but globally, I got to kind of get on, you know, uh, a franchise train, but also 
make it meaningful and mm-hmm. he has so i guess he's having the last laugh yeah yeah no he's very very good business sense for sure and this is yeah. the first movie he actually produced he started his production company and this is the first one that he chose and i think there were a lot of deci- probably i mean whether you easily to look back and say he knew what he was doing but i'm sure he did in terms of picking this to be his main vehicle and then like you said i think seeing this landscape shifting more towards this direction i mean he definitely has, has weathered a lot of uh of storms it, it just even with his personal popularity but coming back to this franchise helps rejuvenate himself um and continue on his career so it was just a brilliant move for him for sure couldn't agree more and then yeah what a great soundtrack um oh yeah for sure i i even still listen to that um yeah. that score when i need to get pumped up or when i'm working out <laughs> like that last like two minutes during that that <laughs> train sequence because i can jump back to feeling like i was when i was 14 uh-huh. in that theater seat like i can still capture that emotion if i if i if i want to um you know even watching that sequence on my phone like if i just pull it up on youtube and just watch on my phone like i can still because i have that memory kind of transport myself back to to what that was like so it's definitely uh, definitely fun cool yes Definitely. Um, so yeah, what's uh, what's your number two? All right, it's a good segue into blockbusters that has something to say. It's Dune from 2021. I think a lot of the same themes that you're talking about, like I put this because a big part of my framework of watching movies on the big screen were this transportive, immersive quality that can only be achieved on a big screen with that level of sort of sound effects and sound quality going around with you. You can't replicate that on on your home screen, no matter how big that is. Um, And also watching with other people. I think to me, this signifies the best of a communal experience that's also transportive. And and I also put this on the list because this movie sort of came in the middle of a pandemic. And I will never shake off the feeling of, First of all, lining up to get inside the theater. I thought first the queues are there because they're probably checking vaccines and such. And I was like, oh no, they're just a lot of people that need to get in. And the whole theater was packed and and it was sort of, you know, this glee moment that, oh, we might be back at the movies, you know, which is pretty amazing. But to most people probably know about this movie, but the log line essentially of this is, feature adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. So the other reason sort of why I put this, it's once again, like you were saying, the mise-en-scene of it all, like this is a movie where I really felt all the departments work in concert and they come together. Yeah. Look, I didn't grow up reading the book, I hadn't even watched the David Lynch movie or any of the other versions that have been created. So I'm not familiar, wasn't familiar with the mythology of the movie at all. And the fact that this movie can dole out all that information and detail and yet keep me leaned in. I remember actually not edge of the seat, but sort of leaned in towards this giant IMAX screen because I just wanted every bit of it. And I thought about it since then, why is that? And I think a lot of it has to do with the technical details and such of it and how beautifully Mm -hmm. these worlds are realized that you are truly, truly, truly transported. But I think it's, it's a lot more than that. It is about number one, dealing with themes that we care about. 
the planet, uh, colonization, power, coming of age, mothers and sons, fathers and sons. Um, there's a lot at play here, big, big global themes that affect all of us as a society and a planet, but also intimate themes. Then number two, it's sort of layered in with great performances. I mean, it's it's almost kind of a, an embarrassment of riches in terms of who they got. And it's also kind of sad that the movie's not gotten that much attention for his performances, but mm. you don't care about any, at least I wouldn't care about any of the stuff if I was not sort of pulled in by the people who were portraying what they were portraying. And so if you add all that up, great world, world building, technical details, relevant themes, great performances, what you're left with is a sense of wonder and wow, but also a sense of emotionality and a little bit of sort of mysterious kind of, you know, sand-like, spice-like quality, pun intended, that you really can't wrap your head around. And that's what good transportive experiences do. They leave you. Uh, and in this movie, particularly, everything is not tied with a pretty bow. In fact, it's left for you to just sit in your theater seat and you know be sort of gobsmacked, but also left a little bit hanging because the movie is only the first part. So I don't know, I, I sort of, and you and I, we said this, I think after we'd both watched the movie that this sort of felt like a 2001 like experience where you're gonna look mm -hmm. back 30 years from now and sort of feel that, oh, something pretty out there and pretty genius and incredible was put on the screens. And I'm so glad that the movie came out. I'm so glad that the movie did well. There are many such experiences that I've, have, that I've had in the theater, but I think I wanted to put this just as an homage to the times that we live in and, and the fact that this movie could come out and, and do so well and be a popcorn movie, but also have so much to say, so much to unpack, which happens very rarely. So yeah, that's Dune, number two. Yeah, no, I, I saw this movie as well at uh, Chinese IMAX uh, opening weekend. So it's packed audience, um, obviously, huge screen, incredible sound design. And it was, you know, especially with the sound, I was thinking like, I, if I had watched this, cause it was streaming on HBO max as well at the same time. So yeah, I could watch this at home, but, and I have a good sound system. Um, however, there'd be nothing like, uh, like what this, the sound design would not have come across as strongly as, as it would have, um, in the, in home on the, in, you know, watching it at home. Um, so I definitely, and, and the scale of the visuals was, uh, something you really do need to, to see in, uh, in a theater, like on the level, of like a Lawrence of Arabia in terms of the scope mm -hmm. of, of what, uh, what he was able to do. Um, I also found it was really interesting because I, had not read the book, um, though I went with one of my best friends who had just recently read the book and was kind of really excited to see the film. Um, I'd seen the Lynch movie, but so long ago that I forgot what it was like. But it's always interesting to me to go into to movies like this where so many, because this was also opening weekend, so many of the people there are like huge fans of the franchise, but I am not one of them. Like normally mm -hmm. I am one of the the fanboys of like a Star Wars film or a Marvel film. Like I'm part of that. And very rarely am I going to a movie like this where I'm not part of that community and just being on the outside, but then taking in the film, obviously, but just seeing how the audience reacts and hearing the, the fanboys talk afterwards about how they felt about it, being on the inside of this, this community of people that are Dune heads um, is, is always just fascinating to me to be like, yeah, I'm not part of this, but like, 
I can experience it a little bit as well. Um, sort of um, another time that was similar to this was when I saw the first Harry Potter movie. I had never read any of the books, but I just wanted to glom myself onto the the franchise, I guess. Actually, my, my roommate and I painted our foreheads with a Harry Potter scar as if we were fans, even though none of us have read the book and went to the movie and then fell in love with the, the, the franchise. And I've read all the books now and things, but it's always interesting when you're kind of outside of the community of a fan base, see how they're taking in something. Um, and definitely like the, the folks afterwards were all like, Oh my God, he, he kept, he's like, someone was saying something like this was more Dune than the book was even Dune. Mm-hmm. Like he captured Dune more than Dune captured Dune. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, clearly the fans like this as much as someone who like me, who has no, you know, really much of a, uh, a background in what the Dune mythology was. But to your point earlier too, I think uh, what a villain who did so well was the world building in this movie was so amazing where it didn't, it didn't feel like exposition dump mm-hmm. or like, you know, as again, someone who's a Dune novice, I didn't know any of this stuff, but I felt like I knew enough like he knew when to back off and give you the, the story and then when to kind of interject some elements of exposition, which you do need to understand. There's a lot of complicated things in this universe to know, but it's one of the best examples of world building, like a James Cameron level world building that, that I had, you know, very few directors to pull off. And I think that is what he did uh, some, uh, the best in this. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, I know what the worm is. I know how to walk in the sand when if shit, you know, hit the fan, like I know. And I right. had none of right. these skills when I watched when I walked into the theater. But I think it sort of speaks to, if I could add to what you were saying, like we live in a world of franchises and MCU and what have you, where there's a lot of fandom that is driving all of that. And and I love those movies and we watched several of those together and mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But I think what was so genius about this is that its fan base is not at the same level as those movies. And yet, and the fact that this movie could still appeal to the non-fan people and and sort of be more mainstream, if you will, at the same time, I think that's pretty amazing. And I, I, I kind of look, not that every movie should be like this going forward, but I think it gives me hope that you can be a non-superhero movie and be complicated and have world themes and such and still be an event. Mm-hmm. And, and that gives me some hope in terms of the business going forward as well. That, that's true. Yeah, it's really hard to walk that line between pleasing the fans, which you need to do to, yeah. to, to you know, make a successful film in this way. But you also have to reach a wide audience. So you have to please the Dune heads that were like freaking out after the movie that I saw. I'm like, oh, this is so Dune. And me who's never read Dune, but still really loved the movie. I mean, that's a very, very hard thing to do. And I think definitely uh, Villeneuve gets a lot of credit for that. And t- to your point too, I hope that this is a lesson that is learned from this world of IP and franchise, which I don't think we will escape from. I think that's just the economics of the business nowadays is, there'll be less and less non, you know, IP based things, but that, that the filmmakers are still able to craft something that can be an event for more than people that have just seen the Dune miniseries or read the book, but really to everyone and make these grand statements um, and be that, that popular. It's, I think definitely this great. We're talking about this film too, because I think that that's important just for the, the future of the theatrical business in terms of quality. Totally. Um, so what's your number two? Yeah, so my number two is a film from 2003, Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, So the IMDb plot here, after awakening from a four-year coma, a former assassin wreaks vengeance on the team of assassins who betrayed her. 
Um, and this is Quentin Tarantino film uh, starring Uma Thurman, Lucy Liu, among others. Um, and I, I put this movie on the list um, because it really speaks a lot to the, the social aspects of, of film for me. So I saw this movie on the opening night at midnight, actually, um, in London. So at the time I was studying abroad um, and uh, I had see, seen a couple movies. I've been there a couple months already. So I'd seen movies in London before in my time there, but basically just myself, I would go because uh, none of the other uh, housemates that I was living with that were part of the program I was in were big movie fans. So I would go out to the movies. Uh, but this one, I don't even know how I necessarily did it, but I convinced the entire house to be like, we got to go to a midnight show. This movie's going to be great. You know, these were not film fans. Some of them had heard of Quentin Tarantino, but it wasn't, you know, something that uh, they were necessarily excited to do is like my kind of turn to, to do something social for the, for the whole group. So about uh, 15 or so of us, um, and yeah, we went to this uh, big theater in uh, Leicester Square in London, a midnight show. And I mean, that movie is like such a crowd pleasing movie, a lot of just incredible scenes, um, especially the the crazy 88 battle at the end where um, Uma Thurman's, you know, cutting limbs off of all these uh, these assassins. And everyone, mainly our group, honestly, were very loud, you know, clapping, cheering, gasping. And it was interesting. I was thinking, like, well, maybe this is just like an American thing. <clears throat> in terms of being this loud at a movie and hopefully the other people in the audience weren't kind of pissed that we were doing this, but um, it really just uh, was important for me to really understand like, yeah, this is like a social bonding experience you can have with your friends and enjoying and laughing and, you know, uh, clapping at these, these incredibly over the top action scenes is, is this uh, feeling that, yeah, you can get this at home. Um, but it works a lot better in the big screen, especially then when there's people you don't even know that you can participate with this in. Um, so this movie definitely was, uh, um, this experience was something that's lasting on me for, for years now in terms of just an incredible theatrical experience. I mean, I also really love the movie. It's Quentin Tarantino is one of my favorite directors. I think this is my favorite film of his actually. Um, really? yeah, wow. I, I just absolutely love this movie. It, it's a mishmash of all the genres that I already kind of liked. Um, which is like, you know, Hong Kong action cinema, um, you know, sword and sandals, a little bit of uh, the um, spaghetti Western thrown in more so in volume two than volume one. But, you know, Quentin Tarantino is all about mashing up genres. And this is like all my favorite genres mashed into one um, and just the just incredible experience. But again, I think this just um, shows to me that 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 sense of community that you can have um, and a shared experience um, to that level in a theater with, again, people you don't know, but then also your best friends. Um, it was uh, just a, a great, uh, great memory that uh, will always be a lasting impression for me in terms of the theater. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine like watching this with a whole bunch of people in the theater where all this madness is happening, what that would do. Um, did, do you even walk out, you know, the theater without not imagining like blood sprays all over you? Probably oh, not. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, and too, like the ending was that twist ending of like uh, when they reveal that Uma Thurman's daughter, who she was pregnant when she got attacked initially in the flashbacks by these people she's get, trying to get revenge on. She thought her daughter was dead and her daughter was like alive. And I remember like the whole audience was like, oh my God, like this big collective gasp of like an amazing twist ending that, that everyone then is talking about that you can hear talking about leaving the theater. So yeah, it's definitely a, like was a lasting, uh, lasting impression. I can only imagine. So I had avoided this movie for a long, long time because I don't like any of the genres that you mentioned particularly. Yeah. Um, and I'd heard about all the bloodiness and such. And I was like, this is not my thing. And, you know, I don't know if I'm any director's head per se, because mm -hmm. I just, just not in my personality. I look at, I mean, sure, I'll, you know, 
jump up to go and watch something that's been done by somebody who I really appreciate, but I try and judge the movie on what it is other than more so than who it's done by and mm-hmm. who are the people involved. Of course that factors in, but I'm not just going to blindly, you know, follow people. There are some exceptions, but mostly I don't. So, uh-huh. so with, with Tarantino, I mean, I've obviously loved many of his movies, but I don't know, there is something about him that also repels me. And I know I'm not the only one in, in that uh, as much as I admire him as a filmmaker. So, for all those reasons, I, I sort of avoided this movie. And then I finally watched it very recently and was kind of blown away. Um, like this, this, I should not like this movie for <laughs> to offer. This is not my kind of movie at right, all. Right. Fact that I was totally pulled in. Um, it's brilliantly done. The score is so amazing. Amazing. Oh, yeah. It's probably now my, which is funny, I'm coming back to this movie like now you know, in the year of 2021, 2022, but it's probably my, one of my favorite scores now because it's just so amazingly done. Um, the pacing of the movie is so amazing because, you know, on the surface of it, like this movie really doesn't have much to say. Like it's, no. just, a, it's just a set piece directorial vision that's executed brilliantly and you can just take it for that. But then and that's how I took it when I was watching the movie. And that's a part of me also felt like what a vain exercise this is in somebody's own egotistical pursuits. But then as I stepped away from the movie, the movie stayed with me. And I think a lot of it has to do with Uma Thurman and the performances. And there's something sort of haunting about, about it. You know, there's, there's sort of other societal things about power of women our and and the fact that the movie doesn't judge its people and its characters one bit mm-hmm. it's also a movie about mastering the skills like how you really see her learn how to use the sword and how all these amazing aspects of this assassin world be it the weapons and such how they are put together and created there's like mastery and skill in all of that so i don't know i, I i'm still processing it but the point that I want to make was that it has a lot more to offer than just meets the eye. And I'm pleasantly surprised by it. Um, but yeah, I can't even imagine what watching this movie on the big screen with a bunch of people would be like, like, yeah, yeah. You, you know, I'm glad you did, did see it and, and were able to like pleasantly surprised in terms of uh, your reaction that you actually enjoyed the film. That's it's always uh yeah, exciting um, when you kind of under, uncover something that for a while either you've been avoiding or didn't, ah, I'm not going to like this, so I'm not going to watch it. And then when you do, you're like, oh, actually, that was, you know, that was kind of good. Uh, the, the part two, it's interesting because he, he moved a lot of the action is really in part one. It's a very different movie than part two, actually, which is lacking on a lot of the same action. Um, so if you kind of go in expecting the same thing, it's, it's not really that, uh, which was interesting. Uh, actually, funnily enough, the same group I saw part one with who was like, oh, this is the best thing ever. We then got together as a reunion back in the States and saw part two together. But I think it came out in April of the next following year. And it was fun to see everyone, but it also was, people were like, oh, that was not the same. And it's not as much of a crowd-pleasing movie as as the first one was. It's just interesting, uh, that that dynamic there. But um, but yeah, it it definitely, um, especially interesting too, because the, you know, the movie is, again, much of uh, his version of like these, uh, you know, um, Shaw Brothers films uh, out of Hong Kong. Uh, but if you don't know those genres, you're not expecting that moment when 
an arm gets cut off and then the blood starts spraying everywhere. Like that was, I remember that being like, especially my friends who like didn't really expect what was going to happen. Just like freaking out and like laughing and being like, cause it was a super surprise. Uh, whereas I'm like, okay, I think I know like what he's trying to do here and where this could go. But uh, yeah, definitely another moment in the, in the theater that I feel just everyone just being like, Oh my God, I didn't think it was going to go this way. It was, uh, was really cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know it would be that it, it, it was going to be that, that heightened but mm-hmm. that again like kudos to him like this movie could be unwatchable actually for all its gore but because it's so highly stylized and heightened mm-hmm. it almost becomes ridiculous and right. kind of comical which is mm-hmm. sort of the point but you know there's such a great tone handling that's happening over there yeah because on the face of it i like i said i would this is not a movie for me right right <laughs> but, right uh so now i'm very happy to have uh watched it and also what a great uh example i think for you for uh, a communal experience because you watched it with the same people again mm-hmm. or two. that's pretty mm-hmm. amazing that doesn't happen uh, very often especially yeah. the times we live in so exactly <laughs> yeah okay um, so my number one yeah Speaking of sort of shock, because I at the very top of the episode I mentioned like when it when it comes to communal experiences, laughter, humor, suspense are definitely uniting forces in that. I think the other one is shock, which your pick had, and I think my pick also has uh, a boatload of it, but in a very different way, which is the master from. 2012, uh, the logline of the movie is a naval veteran arrives home from war, unsettled and uncertain of his future until he is tantalized by the cause, capital C, and his charismatic leader. Directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, a whole bunch of other great people. So I put this movie on here because, look, <laughs> You know, Alex, that I have walked out of many, many movies. And usually it's because I'm bored and it's what I call the restroom test. Uh, Meaning if I had to go somewhere in the middle of the three-fourth, third act of the movie to go to the restroom. And if I don't sort of want to go back in, I don't go back in. Because it means that the movie has sort of lost me and, and... Maybe this is not a great thing to say on a movie podcast because it's probably sacrilegious to like leave a movie. But I say this because this is a movie that I did not leave, spoiler alert, uh, for it fitting the bathroom test, but because I just couldn't be in this space for any longer, for how much it shook me and how much it affected me. So I watched this, I want to say the first month of it's coming out uh, at the Arclight, our favorite place in LA. This was the time when I lived in LA. I actually didn't have that much background on PTA. Um, I'd watched Boogie Nights. And again, like I said, I'm not ahead of anybody. So there are a bunch of PTA heads and such all around me. I could sense it. And I was like, what is happening? This is like a convention or, you know, a cult in a cult. Uh, but again, so, but I, I was looking forward to it definitely. Um, and I kept watching it until the scene in the jail, when Joaquin Phoenix is literally hurling his body 
to the the railings of the jail and such. And that's when I was like, I, I don't think I can take this anymore. And I left. And, and for years, I did not come back to this movie, didn't want to interrogate my thoughts or my feelings towards it. I don't think I've had an experience in the movie theaters of this kind, which was so jolting that I couldn't even be in the same space. So yes, transportive, but in a very different kind of way where I just felt like I was alone in a sea of people and just couldn't take it anymore, even though it was in a packed house. So since then I watched the movie a few times and I've interrogated mm -hmm. why this happened and why this is so memorable for me for this reason is because many, many th things I think. So on the thematic level, I think this movie does such an amazing job of playing with loneliness, you being really troubled, forming a friendship, but then this friendship also being a bit of a toxic sort of relationship because in order for it to work, it has to keep the cause, which is the cult going. So the two people almost cannot escape their traumas and their fears because if that happens, everything else breaks. And, and I think it hit me at a time when I was fairly new in LA. Loneliness was definitely a big topic on my mind. I was making new friends. And I think there's something about those themes kind of really hitting me at a time, at a place which not that I was expecting this to happen to me, but it sort of just touched me and pushed my buttons in such a way that I just couldn't, couldn't contain it, um, couldn't contain myself um, in my seat, literally. And then it's further layered by probably some of the most brilliant performances in the last 20 years or so that I can think of where Joaquin Phoenix gives just like contorted ghost performance. His body is sort of convoluted and so mm -hmm. odd and and you look at his face and his face looks like he's you know he's carrying all the pain and the ghost that he's seen on his face um and you know even before he meets Joaquin Phoenix like the scenes on the ship or the scenes in the departmental store department store where he's working it's it's just heartbreaking unbelievable like that in itself is very unsettling to watch and then you meet Felicity Moore Hoffman, who's on the surface majestic and confident and alluring and attractive and such. But also, if you look into his eyes, he's a hollow, fearful man because maybe somewhere deep down he knows what he's prescribing is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the movement so far has worked and now it's becoming bigger, almost a religion and people are expecting for answers and he ain't got any. So mm -hmm. maybe it's just fear of what am I going to tell them? They're going to find out or, and then you have Amy Adams who's sort of this still character in the back who's sort of controlling in many ways the cause. Like if you remove her, probably Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix run away to some other right. city right. and start fresh, you know? So she is sort of this still, agent of chaos, which again is just, again, each of these people are so unsettling in their own way. And then talk about the 
the mise-en-scene and the departments all coming together from the brilliant cinematography, you literally feel like you are in post-World War II times. Just the color, Johnny Greenwood's amazing score that sort of permeates and create this unsettling yet alluring ambiance. I don't know, what can I say? It's sort of movie making at its finest in many ways to the point that it's so dense that you need to come back to it several times if you have the stomach for it to even pass it. And again, going back to, would I have had a similar reaction had I watched this at home? Mm -hmm. Probably not. I think it is about watching movies on the big screen with a bunch of people that sort of shock you and stir you in that way where you can't even sit in the theater. This can only happen in, on the big screen, I think. I don't think this would have happened if I watched it at home. And selfishly, I also wanted to put like an adult drama over here and sort of prove the point that, yeah, this is an, it is an event movie. I, to me, Licorice Pizza this year was an event movie because of its legacy and, and such. But it doesn't have to be IP. It doesn't have to be all, you know, hunky-dory bunch of people having fun. It can be something serious and transgressive and transportive and yet be worthy of watching on the big screen when done right. Mm -hmm. So that's number one for me, The Master, the movie I didn't finish. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I've actually never walked out of a movie before. so it's just interesting yeah that uh that um that was that this is a movie left that much of an impression on you in the theater that it was just something that you couldn't you couldn't take anymore but it is interesting um that in terms of uh if you had seen that at home like at home there are distractions it's easier for you you can kind of get up whenever you want maybe you pause and maybe you don't um kind of come back to it it's easy to kind of detach yourself from that world so perhaps the intensity of what the the intense feeling of loneliness and all the horrible things that were going on in Joaquin's head. And then also through his performance in terms of it definitely being hard to watch wouldn't have hit you as much probably, I think um, because you could kind of not be in it a hundred percent all the time. Whereas in a movie, you really do have that your attention is 100% on that. So it can affect you a lot more. Uh, And this clearly did have, have an effect. Um, So I had seen this in theaters as well at the arc light as well, when it came out. Um, And uh, maybe you were sitting in the same theater. Maybe. And I was like, why is that guy getting up? (laughs) Hopefully he's coming back. Um, yeah, like I am not a huge P.T. Anderson fan. Um, I can respect his movies, but I haven't loved a lot of them. Um, and I do, though, think it's very interesting, like his filmography and his artistic point of view definitely seems to be a lot about California in the same way you can maybe categorize Woody Allen or Scorsese as like, oh, they, you know, write about New York City and that's sort of in their movies whether it's set in New York or not, there's that feeling in it. I definitely feel like P.T. Anderson's consistently commenting on California and the different, the culture that we have here and, and the differences in our society. And this movie definitely does, I do think speaks a lot to that um, shallowness, I guess. It's it's like everyone is like, and even um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, like, yeah, he's nice, but like, you can't, he doesn't, he's very surface level because you're right. He doesn't actually have answers, but because in California, I feel like people can, uh, you, you can kind of form these looser, less deep connections. It allows for people then to be able to create these religions that kind of, once you start 
poking at a little bit, then it falls apart, but no one really pokes at it because that's sort of the way that, um, the, the, the culture sometimes is here in California. And there definitely is that sense of loneliness then where you're feeling like you're not really making connections. You can't really fit in, even though there's people all around you and you know everyone's really nice and really friendly. Um, and I think that's a lot of what uh, Joaquin's character, it, you know, obviously he has that PTSD that he's dealing with as well from the war, but he's able to survive in California, I feel, where he wouldn't maybe be able to do that in other places. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, you being uh, freshly moved to L.A. when you saw it, too, and kind of having those same kind of feelings of, of uh, you know, I don't want to speak for you, but it sounds like loneliness, or a little bit of isolation or something. And maybe that the focus in on that in this movie really affected you um, because it was that that time. Um, it's funny. I didn't actually put the California connection in my head, but that's so true. I mean, they literally show Pasadena. I didn't live that far from there. I mm. lived on the border of Glendale, Pasadena when I moved to LA. So yeah, go figure. Yeah. But my, my main uh, reaction to this movie when I saw it was a little more like disappointment in the fact that, cause it was 70 millimeter release. Like he shot it on 65 and it was like that. I was like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, this is going to be uh, very visual. Um, obviously the film made before that there will be blood. It was just, I think his, his best film and one that just is like amazing to see like just the scope of it. And this movie was just so much like so many close-ups and so much more about portraiture. It was and, and it was like what was in the frame and how he arranged it was more what he was focusing on, which disappointed me because like my expectations were like, oh, coming off of there would be blood and it's 70 millimeter. What is this going to look like? And it was all in like, you know, small confined spaces, which, again, I think was what he was trying to say. I mean, he used mm-hmm. the um, his visual style, I think, fit the narrative and the themes he was talking about. But to me, as someone who was coming in, they're not a huge P.T. Anderson fan um, necessarily and expecting some very cinematic, quote unquote, from like a visual perspective film and was I just remember walking out being like that was disappointing in that respect and then also because the characters like you were saying too are so odd and like off-putting on purpose they are but that was just helped me or made it harder for me to be interested in what was going on um, but I've seen the film since then and definitely can grow to appreciate it a lot more but it's still not um, it doesn't like touch or speak to me and I, I think that's just an issue I have with most of his films like I I'm not able to like reach the some deeper connection with them some some of them definitely Licorice Peach and, and There Will Be Blood and Punch Drunk Love but the rest of his filmography I still find a little elusive um, maybe someday I'll be in the right headspace to all of a sudden have an epiphany moment on Inherent Vice or something but we'll see yeah I doubt about that one um, you never know you never know you never know but yeah this one I think it was very elusive to me for a while. And it's, I think I've started to grasp it more than I could potentially earlier. Mm-hmm. And in interesting ways, look back at my own life, you know, as well and trace it as I watch the movie over and over again. So in some ways it actually does feel emotional and personal now, mm-hmm. but it's interesting what you say that on first brush and even second brush, it actually it doesn't feel emotional at all. It's very hard to grasp. Um, and maybe that's why he's such an interesting filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps. And and I guess the 70 millimeter stuff, like, to be honest, this was pretty early in my sort of film immersion, if you will. I didn't even really understand the difference between that versus not 70 millimeter 
but what it did do was this you know creation of claustrophobia mm-hmm. in these confined places where yeah you're watching the main action but then Amy Adams is sitting in the corner at the end doing stuff with her eyes and her face and it's adding to the simmering quality of unsettlement and then i finally walk out i right. don't think that happens if it's not done the way it's done it's not just a character it is the cinematography the 70 mm-hmm. millimeter of it all the score it all is kind of layered up but but yeah it's yeah it's 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 a weird one for sure mm-hmm. um okay what's your number one okay so my number one um is Star Wars Episode 2 Attack of the Clones came out in 2002. Um the Just IMDb the master basically. The exactly. Yeah. Uh the IMDb plot summary there uh, 10 years after initially meeting Anakin Skywalker shares a forbidden romance with Padme Amidala while Obi-Wan Kenobi investigates an assassination attempt in the senator on the senator and discovers a secret clone army crafted by the Jedi. Um so obviously Star Wars film part of the prequel trilogy directed by George Lucas um and i put this movie on the list um for uh, the reason that it for me really for the first time encapsulated this feeling of a film community where the movie theater was like a destination in a sense of like a church for people that loved um movies so for this film you know, i huge star wars fan my entire life um i'd seen episode 1 opening night um but i think it's like a 7 p.m. show and since that point i had then discovered <laughs> going to midnight shows so i've been going to midnight shows for a couple years before seeing attack of the clones and for this movie because it was so hyped not only did i see it at midnight but me and my uh, close friends in college actually camped out in front of the theater for about two <laughs> nights because we wanted to get good seats so this is before assigned seats um so you know you couldn't book your tickets you know in advance you get you get the tickets online um but you couldn't book your seats in advance i mean we wanted good seats it's a star wars movie so we uh went down to the irvine spectrum which is a theater down in orange county and then basically pitched a tent in front of the theater and camped there for two nights um to make sure we got good seats but we were there in this line um with maybe like 50 60 other people and every day kind of growing and it was great like people set up TVs watching Star Wars computers playing Star Wars video games uh we were all like we met people were talking about things doing like Star Wars trivia it was really like this whole sense of you know these were all the Star Wars fans now gathered in one place um in front of this theater and then everyone you know talking about what was exciting about them and this movie speculating fan theories all this stuff it was like a internet message board in real life basically um and then everyone kind of going into the theater um obviously you know uh enjoying the film because it's star wars and we're there you know people jumping up and clapping in in the theater and standing up and things like that and then afterwards all the dialogue you know of of people uh, you know talking about what they thought about the film what immediately happened but it was really this this first time like wow there really is this big community here yes it's around Star Wars which is um not just about film but on uh, this IP but it was really the sense of, yeah this is a place a theater that is the gathering point for all these people that really love this particular film franchise um and then without the theater yeah these all these things could still happen online again like there'd be message boards or chat rooms you watch like youtube reviews or go on twitter or something but is having a physical destination that everyone can flock to you know only you know star wars movies are rare as well it's like one every you know 3 years back then um and then 10 years you know every trilogy and things so it's a rare opportunity to see all these fans and meeting all these people and the shared love of going to the movies 
um, was something that uh, still um, is uh, special to me. And that's one of the reasons why I love going to midnight shows uh, did for a long time. Now it's like, you know, I'm older, so not midnight, but, you know, opening night for like the Marvel film or these IP franchises that I really like, because it is that sense of everyone kind of getting together um, in their church of worship for whether it's Marvel or Star Wars or whatever the IP is. Um, you, it's, it's being part of that community is something that's very, very special that, uh, you know, I, really feel is important to me in terms of what that the theatrical experience is like. And it's something I'll never, never forget either. It's crazy. Yeah. Looking back on it, it's kind of crazy that, that I, that I did that, but you know, you're in college, you got time. Why not set up a tent and camp out in front of a movie theater? No, I mean, it sounds super, super fun. What are your thoughts on the movie? And especially when you watched it that first time, Oh yeah. I'm sure you watched it since and is it the same or did you love the movie when you watched it? You, that's How a great deliver, you know, after this hype and two day marathon that you had leading up to it. Yeah, that's a great question. So at the time I, I mean, actually, so I saw it midnight and then went back the next morning and saw it at 10 30 in the morning oh at the God. same theater and then saw it again, I believe like two or three days later. I think in total, I saw it about five times in the theater and I, I loved it. Um, you know, I, I actually too, I was still, I filmed the documentary about my friends and I uh, anticipating this movie. So it was over like 30 days. Um, and afterwards is I can go back and watch like my review of the film be like, Oh my God, it's so much better than episode one and all these things have been loved. And Oh my God, Oh my God. Now, in my opinion, it's the weakest of the six star Wars movies uh, that George Lucas made. Like I still like parts of it, but all the flaws have kind of come out to me now. And actually I think the first episode one Phantom Menace is a much better film and, and ages a lot better than, than this one did. So it definitely was like in the moment, you have this feeling because of, you know, you want to like the movie It's there. You have everyone cheering and getting up when Yoda pulls out his lightsaber for the first time and people didn't expect that. And you know, all that stuff. So there definitely was a, of the moment thing, like a halo effect uh, from that first screening that definitely after then seeing it, you know, many years later, I've seen the movie like dozens and dozens of times now on, on video, uh, but it's not necessarily that it, and maybe like the video experience too, like makes the flaws stand out a little more because yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to defend this as, as a good work of art or even like a, one of the better star Wars films. Um, so definitely like the experience does, um, you know, did color my opinion of the film for a while, though now I can kind of look back and say, no, it's, it's the weakest of the six. Um, but there's still some amazing moments that I remember seeing, um, you know, for the first time in the theater. Uh, so definitely yeah. there is that experience where if I saw it on DVD, I'd probably be like, I don't know, this isn't, this isn't as good, um, yeah. as I might've expected. So yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely my, it was interesting kind of going back and seeing my opinions there and how much they've, they've changed. Uh, I, all I'm thinking of is if I could somehow be transported back in time and meet you and the gang at this tent the night before, what would, what would that be like? <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, maybe you're one of those, cause we were getting like, I don't want to say like teased, but like we're in a mall. So like, there are all these people like going out to CPK and then they'd be like, what are you guys doing? And we'd be like, yeah, we're staying in line for stars. Like, oh, okay. Like they'd be like, you guys are just stupid, <laughs> which was fun too. But yeah, you might've been this people being like, been in that gap. yeah, getting I your CBK takeout. Yeah. <laughs> being like, what are you like? Really? You guys are doing this for a movie? <laughs> like ridiculous. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. In some ways I'm jealous though, you know, cause as well, who knows, maybe this will happen someday, but I don't see myself doing that ever. 
I haven't done that ever for any movie. Like I want to see it, but I'll I'll wait for it. You know, I'll I'll sort of figure out a way to kind of go see it. And I also, in many ways, like watching movies alone mm-hmm. in the third row where there aren't that many people. So, and they're there in the background just to make me feel like I am watching with a bunch of people, but they're not with me. Mm-hmm. But I think it also comes down to the kind of movie, like, you know, you and I, and you've been so great at orchestrating, you know, communal movie going experiences, especially with the MCU movies. And I can say this for sure, that those movies would not mean anything to me if I had not seen them with you and the gang. Like mm-hmm. watching these movies and appreciating them, especially as a non-fan of any of the IP mm-hmm. out there pretty much, it has to do with the communal experience, 100%. Um, so going back to this movie, I had never seen it before. I watched it this week and I'm sorry to say I could not make it past the 45 minute mark. What part of the film is that? I'm just curious on where you made it. It's Was it the cloning facility? Minute. Did you make it to the cloning, like the rain planet Camino when like there was all the yeah. rain and okay, okay, exactly. okay. I'm, I'm trying to think of that's probably around the 40 minute mark yeah. when Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, that, that's the weaker part of the film. The, the last, the third act, the last reel is is incre- is amazing. Um, okay. So if anything, maybe you should have just skipped ahead and just watched the, there's a, okay. there's a huge action scene at the end that kind of saves the film. Uh, it was the only part that I can kind of look back now and be like, that's good. The rest of it, a lot of problems. So I'm not surprised, you know, especially <laughs> as someone who's not a, a, a big fan of Star Wars to begin with necessarily, this would be not the film that I'd recommend anyone watch. Probably not. And I knew <laughs> yeah. that going in. Yeah, still, totally. Right. But yeah, maybe I'll go back and watch the, the last part. But, you know, having said that, there aren't like, there even the MCU movies, and I'm sure you will agree with this, cannot be compared to the Star Wars legacy. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, And there's reason, even I as a non-fan can see that, like, you know, what these movies were, what they've created over a period of time. Once again, is the mise-en-scene, the, the characters, the journey, the myth surrounding it all. In many ways, like, I mean, you tell me, but it seems to me everything we know about fandom comes from here in our modern world. It sort of created this whole phenomenon, really, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the difference, the, one of the main differences just with Star Wars is it is an auteur's vision of right. one particular artist expressing his art versus an an IP that other artists can interpret in different ways and, and more of a business. I mean, that was, George was never, um, obviously he lucked into being a billionaire because of this, but um, it wasn't anything where he was setting out to sort of artificially create some, you know, franchise that can sell McDonald's toys. Like this was his artistic expression of a, of his worldview. Um, and I think that's why those first six movies are very special. And you can see the difference when the corporation takes over, which is Disney and what they were now thinking about what were the McDonald's meals we can create. And mm-hmm. it's much more of a business decision and the art has been stripped out of it. And that's why those movies aren't as good in my opinion. Yeah, but. exactly. Yeah. Do you think in the world that we live in today and specifically with the, the theatrical experience question mark of it all does a star wars like legacy get created or not and i'm sort of going back to your you know the theater is a church comment, yeah. which i think has a big role to play in making the legacy of these movies so i'm curious if 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 say star wars the very first movie were to come out now 
let's just you know put a pin yeah. on the pandemic for a second yeah 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 does this unfold the way it did yeah i mean it's an interesting question um just looking back even at the films that we were just talking about and maybe knives out is an example of that's now going to be a franchise ip that yeah. was original that was you know created again by Ryan Johnson who wrote and directed the film so that is you know his uh his vision of that and now that is a i mean who knows whether it'll be successful especially now if it becomes a streaming franchise as opposed to in theatrical but i think i think um you i'd have to say with that specific question that star wars because it is the um like the art will always they, no matter when that came out, I think it still would have touched people um, because of just the art is that good, that that first uh, original Star Wars film from 77. Um, but I do think the landscape now is definitely something where business incentives are less on finding new IP. They're more on finding a known quantity where we can ensure at least there's some audience that's going to show up to a theater because it's much harder to produce and then distribute and market films now and more expensive nowadays than it was, um, you know, even 20 years ago. Um, and so I think it's really going to be much actually with Ryan Johnson. Um, and it's interesting, actually, if you look back at all of our, our films um, that we were talking about. They are, um, other than maybe Mission, Mission, well, Mission Impossible franchise, but, you know, we have P.T. Anderson, Ryan Johnson, Quentin Tarantino. These all are auteurs. And in a way, they are their own IP in a certain sense. Um, and that I feel like nowadays, unless you are one of those, um, uh, uh, and, and Villeneuve as well, um, if you're one of those artists who kind of has their own fan base already, the studio system will not trust you with, with something new. Um, and, you know, James Cameron's would be the rare exception, right? He created Avatar, which is a, a brand new franchise um, versus, you know, Marvel, which is churning out all these, you know, characters that are that have been around for decades. Um, so I really do feel that unless you are at the level of a Tarantino or P.T. Anderson or, or Villeneuve, um, where you have that already that credibility and that history of box office success, they're not going to give you the keys to try something new. And there's it's just going to be this endless. Um, and, and it's you can still find art in IP. Like I'm not discounting the MCU. I think there's some incredible movies in there um, with uh, great artists expressing their particular visions among the confines of Marvel. But I think that's the, the world we're going to be living in, unfortunately, for, for better, for worse, um, in terms of the theatrical, the theatrical experience. Right. Totally. Hi, Marty. If you're listening, I'm here. <laughs> that was my quick nod to Scorsese. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. I totally agree. I guess my question was more around the theatrical experience of it all. And I, I do think, I agree with you, like something like Star Wars, people will find it and it'll touch them in a meaningful way, no matter what. But I think there is, there is something about the church destination of it all, mm -hmm. watching it with other people in a communal way, getting together the way you guys camped out. Also, this thing of watching it when it's available, not at your own time, um, which I think all adds up to it. Um, and because, yes, of course, you want to go and watch the next one when it comes out. And you will if it came out on Netflix. But I right. think the, the whole act of going to it with a bunch of people sort of adds to it because you want to relive that experience or you want to top it. You know, like you, you camped out the first time, maybe the second time you do something else, you right. eat it, you know, with the people that you saw it with. So, and there aren't, so I do think these two things are linked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the future, I guess it'll just be, will 
humans, for lack of a better word, will, will people find some other way other than film to get that communal experience and sort of replace the need for then yeah. theaters to give that? And theaters are then become just as prolific or uh, prevalent as like opera houses. Yeah, opera still exists. And that was an art form that was very popular a couple hundred years ago. There are people that still love it and go to it, but it's, it's yeah. not driving the same mass appeal or the same uh, number of audience or dollars in that way. And, you know, maybe that'll just be what film transitions into where I will never stop going to theaters, um, whether it's old movies to see again or new movies, like I will go to theaters, but I'll supplement that with like with knives out being like, yeah, I can see this in theater. I don't really feel like it I heard. It's good. Okay, great. And then I'll catch it on streaming, which I did and, and really enjoyed the film. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just going to become a hybrid of that um, is, is my prediction, but who knows? Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, great. So what were some of the films that didn't make the list that are still memorable theatrical experiences for you? Avengers Endgame, Parasite, Lady Bird, Cold War, and Titanic. Oh, oh and man. And Max Fury Road. Oh, okay. Man, Titanic. Now I feel like I'm going to add that to my list. That I didn't even think about that for me. So I'm going to start with Titanic. And then the other ones that I had thought of, uh, Phantom Menace, which is the first Star Wars, Tenant which was when we, the two of us rented that theater to see it during the pandemic. That was pretty cool. Endgame, definitely. Batman Begins and uh, Black Widow. And I'm embarrassed I didn't, I didn't remember Titanic myself, but thanks for bringing that up. Um, that's a special movie for me, so. I know, exactly. Um, well, that's our episode. Uh, I hope you guys all enjoyed listening to our conversation about movies at the movies. And if you so like what we're doing here, we'd really appreciate your support. Please rate us and subscribe uh, and review us as well. Um, and we can be found at any of the major podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Until next time. Bye.